0: Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Luke ten twenty-five through 37, and can be found on page 869 of the Pew Bibles in front of you. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on him. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him jesus told him go and do likewise you may be seated as is the custom at christ community please take a few moments to reflect on the word
1: One of the outstanding characteristics of the early church, what, what propelled this new movement, this new group of people known as Christians, what propelled them forward was that they'd been transformed by God's mercy. They had been so transformed by the mercy of God, they have, they're, they're sort of coming out of the experience of the cross and understanding that, that what Jesus has done for them so transformed their lives that as they went out then into the community, as they went out into the culture, they couldn't help but exercise mercy to the culture, even if their exercise of mercy came with incredibly high risks. And it did, especially in the first few hundred years of the early church. Uh, in, uh, tw- in, in the year 260 A.D., The second of a terrible plague went through the Roman Empire. The first one had been maybe 100 years earlier. And here, sort of for a 15-year span, there's this terrible plague that's that's going throughout the Roman Empire. And uh, most historians would say one out of every three or four people died of the plague. So imagine over that 15-year period... One out of every three or four people are dying because of this plague. The kind of instability, the kind of uncertainty, uh, this disquiet you would have in your own soul. And it was in this environment that the pagan Roman Empire began to take notice of this new group of people calling themselves Christians. And they just noticed the behavior of the Christians in this environment and how they were caring for other people. And one historian says this, and I quote, Most of the Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. Many, listen to this, many in nursing and caring for others contracted the sickness of their neighbors. Many, in nursing and caring for others, contracted the sickness of their neighbors. They transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. Now, just imagine a community of people like Christ Community Church going out and living that way in Wilmington. you had been so changed Radically changed by the mercy of God that when you when you win out, people would say, well, whatever he believes, I'm just stunned at the mercy that they're able to give away. They take great risks. It it costs them a tremendous amount. They're putting themselves in harm's way. They're even taking somebody's sickness on themselves, which might cause their their own death, their own demise. It was this kind of mercy that began to really uproot the entire Roman Empire. And you can imagine that characteristic well, sort of working its way through the culture coming out from the church. Now, this this characteristic of mercy is the exact opposite of what we find in Luke chapter 10. So Jesus is traveling around with his disciples, and, and he intersects with this religious ruler, this this man who is like an elder in the church. He's the, the smart guy. He's the seminary grad. He knows everything about the, the Old Testament law. And Jesus intersects with this gentleman. And, and what we find out is that he, he's become blinded to his own need for mercy. And because he's blinded to his own need for mercy, he's unable to give mercy out And this is the person that Jesus encounters in Luke chapter 10. Now, before we get to the actual encounter, I want us to get a little background. So go back to the beginning of chapter 10, and you'll see just the the context of this particular setting. In, In the beginning of chapter 10, Jesus sends out these 72 evangelists. He had this group of 12 disciples, but then he has sort of a broader, next band out, 72 men, and he sends them out in pairs. So in these surrounding towns, there's these two pairs that just go off to these different towns. These two men go into these towns, and they're preaching one particular sermon, verse 9, chapter 10, verse 9, The kingdom of God has come near to you. That's their primary message. That's the title of their sermon. They're going into the town, and they're saying, hey, the kingdom of God has come near. And the reason the kingdom of God has come near is because the king has come near. Jesus is the king. He's come into the world, and they're saying, hey, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's, it's come near, and, no, and we want you to know who Jesus is. And then in verse 17, you notice that these, these 72 rookie evangelists, they they come back and they return to Jesus and Jesus hosts this party of these 72 evangelists and they're all talking about the stories and the things that they got to see while they were out in these towns and the, the energy and the excitement and sort of the volume was overwhelming. You can imagine these 72 men all in the, having this great party and they're all trying to say, halfway through your story, I'm interrupting with my story. All this excitement of the things they got to see, and it's in this context that Jesus in verse 21, notice this, he's personally moved by what's happening. It says, in that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. This is a, a charismatic moment for Jesus. If We can even say it that way. He, he's, he, he's brought together and, and he sees sort of his plan coming together. I don't know if you've ever been, you don't get too many places in your life where you feel like you've worked really hard to get something together and it's just fitting together just right. You ever have that feeling? It's just a few times. Most of the time you feel like it's just not fitting together just right. But occasionally when it fits together, this, this long endured plan, you just want to say, yes, it's working And Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, is rejoicing. And this word rejoice in the Greek, it means jump up and down. So let's just imagine, wouldn't you love to have been at this party? Seventy-two men sharing these experiences and Jesus jumping up and down. He's saying, yes, it's, it's finally here. It's happening just like we planned. And imagine how long this plan had been in the making. And so Jesus is rejoicing, and somehow this religious party pooper noses his way into the celebration. Verse 25. He's a religious expert, and and he apparently felt some need to test the host of the party. And so this lawyer bumps the DJ off the soundboard. Grabs the music, I mean, grabs the microphone and turns the music off. And then he stands up. Love that from Luke. Stands up. Uh-uh. Uh, teacher, such a condescending attitude. Hey, I'm, I'm the expert here, and I want to interrupt and make sure, you know, you're doing it right, Jesus. And so I have some questions for you. And my first question is it's just a test question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And all all this big party, all this volume just comes to a halt. Now, I know what I would have wanted to do if I were Jesus at that moment to this gentleman. But Jesus realizes, hey, this is a great moment. I've got my 72 rookie evangelists And they're going to encounter this kind of question, and they can watch the master sort of uh, help this man with his question. So he takes advantage of this moment, and I want you to notice this exchange now comes in two different parts. First, the first part, verse 25 through 28, and then the second part, verse 29 through 37, and, and each part has the exact same structure. I don't think that's by accident. And so, first of all, there's a motive that's identified. You notice that in verse 25 immediately, that the man is there to test Jesus. And then in verse 29, you notice that he's trying to justify himself. And then the lawyer asks a question. This is the second part of the structure. There's a motive identified, and then he asks a question. What must I do to be saved? Who is my neighbor? Verse 29. And then Jesus asks this counter-question. He doesn't immediately answer the guy's question. He asks a counter question, verse 26, and then following the story of the Good Samaritan, verse 36. Then the lawyer gives a correct answer to both questions. And then finally, Jesus ends with the same command. Okay, you got it right. Go and do that. So that's the structure of each part. Let's just look at each part. They're very straightforward, easy to follow after part one. First of all, we just notice this motive. Luke tells us the purpose of, of the lawyer's question was to test Jesus. He's not t- trying to get information. This is not a seeker. This is somebody who, who wants to come in and put Jesus the, to the test. The, the lawyer interrupts the party and says, hey, I'd like to put somebody on the stand. The creature wants to put the creator on the stand and say, hey, you answer to me. That's the attitude of this man's heart. That's the motive that he's operating out of. And we get to see, just we just begin to uncover the condition of this man's heart. This this well-educated, very religious man, he's looking at the almighty God and he's saying, you answer my questions and it's, and it's worth noting just to travel back up to verse chapter 10 verse 21 do that with me it's inter, it's it's just interesting to notice that in the midst of this rejoicing jesus has this prayer in verse 21 and he says i thank you father lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things these eternal realities And who has he hidden these eternal realities from? It says right here, the wise and people who are understanding. Meaning, the people who are wise in their own eyes can't see these eternal realities. However, he has graciously revealed them to children. Eternal realities are available. They're cast out. But the people who are wise in their own eyes, they can't see them. But people who come like little children, people who come with a humble heart, they get to see things that you can't even imagine. And it's in the middle of that prayer that this lawyer intersects and says, hey, I'd like for you to answer to me. The the very next person Luke points out is this man. It's, It's like Luke is saying, okay, here's the very opposite of what I was talking about am Jesus is praying little children get to see and then Luke's going to say and here's the opposite of this 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 religious man who thinks he's got it all together. He's he's wise in his own eyes. He's he's full of pride and therefore he cannot see himself. He cannot see Jesus. He cannot see these eternal realities. Remember what the smartest man ever to walk the earth says King Solomon Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. What's the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord. See, if you want to be wise, you've got to come underneath the fear of the Lord. If you don't have that, you're not going to see anything. You're not really going to be wise. You're not going to be understanding. So it's worth pausing to just examine here in our own heart because this is an encounter of Jesus intersecting people who are sitting in church. Some of the parables are meant to intersect people who are out in the world. But here Jesus is saying, okay, I've got the church person. In fact, I've got the, the most churched person. I've got the, the pastor, the seminary person, the elder. I've got this person in my sights with this particular parable. The person who thinks they're religious and they have got it all together. Are you here this morning demanding an explanation from God? I mean, you wouldn't say it out loud. But you know. Hey, God, I've done the right thing and you're not coming through. I mean, I've been this person and this is what you're requiring. And you're just not answering the bell for this thing that I want. And I'd like to put you on trial. See, it's just worth examining for people who are holding their Bibles open if you might not be this person. You're trying to make sure you get it all right, really to box in God to make sure he does exactly what you want. It's a very easy attitude to infiltrate a human heart. It's interesting, the person in this room, this party of these 72 rookie evangelist in Jesus, the person in the room with the most demanding attitude and the person who's farthest away from Jesus is the person who seems to be the most religious. If you took a poll and said, okay, in this congregation, who's the person who's really closest to God? It'd be this guy. And yet he's the farthest away. The religious man has a has a faulty heart, but he does ask an excellent question. Who who how can someone inherit eternal life? So so Jesus is more than willing to respond. And I verse 26. I find Jesus' response fascinating. I mean, so here's the question: who can how shall someone in, inherit eternal life? What do I do? In verse 26, Jesus gives the answer, and I want to stop and say. Well, what's the painfully obvious answer to the question? It's an answer that I would have patted myself on the back to having been given. In fact, if I had been one of the 70, 72 rookie evangelists, and this guy stands up and says, what shall you do to inherit eternal life? I would have said, <clears throat> Jesus, yeah, I got this. one. I mean, it's a softball. Every one of the seventy two of us could answer this simple little question: What shall you inherit do to inherit eternal life what's, what's the painfully obvious scriptural biblical answer John 3:16For God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whosoever and if I'd have been in the room, whosoever I would have made this dramatic point. Whosoever, even people like you, if you believe in him, what do you get? Eternal life. I mean, that's the answer to the question. This is a softball question with a softball answer. And Jesus would have looked at me and said, Paul, you're messing things up right now. Please get out of my way. Because he sees a condition in this man's heart that prevents him from seeing Jesus. So the first thing he needs to tell this guy is you first must see the condition of your heart before you can see the condition of God's heart. And Jesus sees that and I wouldn't have seen that. I would have completely missed it. And so Jesus would push me aside and say this this religious man, he has no idea... That he's in personal need of a savior. He doesn't see himself correctly. So he has no hope of seeing Jesus. Jesus knows that there can be no conversion. Until there's some kind of conviction. And so Jesus. Sits down and says okay well. I mean you're a lawyer. You're an expert in this Old Testament. And you're asking me. You know you you must know the answer. So Jesus again, goes to this question. So so how do you read it? What do you think the law says? And then the lawyer gives it the very easy answer. He quotes two very familiar Old Testament passages, Deuteronomy 6, 5 and Leviticus 19, 18. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then you should... Love your neighbor as yourself. Everybody that would be Jewish would know that. Jesus had given that answer to somebody. You remember in Matthew 22, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is like it. They're coupled together. You can't uncouple them. If you're doing the first one, you're going to be loving your neighbor as yourself. And then so the man gives the right answer, and then Jesus affirms the man. You're right, good answer. Great answer. And then he sort of just adds something. I feel like he just adds something. Great. Hey, you got it right, man. Awesome. And just before we get back to the party, he kind of turns back to the man and says, just do that and you're going to live. I mean, I would have loved to see how he threw that in there. I mean, you got it Right. If you just love the Lord your God with everything that you have, and you love your neighbor with the same passion that you obviously love yourself, then you're going to be okay. You're golden. Let's get back to the party. Now, Now, what should have this religious man said at this point? If he really had been wise, if he'd really been understanding... He, he would have taken Jesus aside, I think, and said something like this. Jesus, here's my problem. I've spent my entire adult life reading and teaching people about the Old Testament Scriptures. I know the right answers, but I can't keep them. I'm great at the test. I got all, I got all A's. But the problem is when I go out, I can't do them. I can't even do very many of them. In fact, some days it doesn't feel like I can do any of them. I'm not really looking for the law. I'm wondering, do you have mercy? For somebody like me, do you have mercy? That would have been a great response by this man. But unfortunately, the pride of this this religious lawyer extinguishes any flame of conviction. And so we then launch into part two. Same, same structure. First of all, we see this man's motive. He's trying to, verse 21, 29, notice this, he's trying to justify himself. He wants to prove to Jesus, maybe he wants to prove to himself, the other people there who knows, that, that he's done enough. There's something you must do, and whatever that requirement is, he's done it. He checked the box for eternal life, and so he asked this quest, second question: Well, well, who is my neighbor? And it's interesting to me that he he seems to take the first part and say, Well, I got I got that under control. Love the Lord your God with your heart, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Up, oh, check, got that. Been there, done that. Got the T-shirt. Let's move on to the neighbor part. And so he moves on to this second part. You see, it's just a complete absence of humility. And he's interested in asking this question because he wants to justify himself. In other words, he's coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I need you to give a definition that will justify my current behavior. You see, he thinks he's going to fit into it, and he's coming to Jesus saying, I have a certain behavior, and you need to give me a definition that affirms that I'm already in that I'm doing enough to get eternal life. And this this attitude, I want to want you to know that this attitude, it happens all the time. You and I have a, a current behavior and we don't want to bring that behavior into the crucible of God's holiness. This place where where all bad motives are burned away. We don't want to bring that behavior into that crucible So we don't want to face the reality of what obedience will require. So we come to Jesus or we come to the Bible and we're looking for ways to justify our current behavior. We come, we already have a behavior that we love. We don't want to change it. So we come saying the Bible's got to affirm my current behavior. I don't want to conform myself to the Bible. I want to get the words of the Bible to be twisted around to say, Paul, you're okay. That, that attitude happens so easily in my own heart. And you know this is happening. This is sort of like a, a clue. If you start to narrow down an obvious command. Well, I mean, I know that's what Jesus said, but... And you you start narrowing it down some way, and you're narrowing it down so you can fit into it. And the obvious command is love your neighbor. I mean, what could be more straightforward? What does the lawyer do? He does what every <clears throat> lawyer does. Sorry, lawyers. Looking for loopholes, looking for uh, definite, let's really define these words. Let's try to get our way around this situation that... Maybe it's a little too tight for us. And so he's trying to narrow down something that, that's very obvious. And so the lawyer responds, so, uh, you know, let's define neighbor. I mean, what is exactly uh, do you mean by neighbor here, Jesus? I mean, uh, you know, how, how do we define this? This is kind of a tricky term, isn't it? And it feels a little bit like the parent who's asked the child to clean the room. You ever had this experience? hey. Son, daughter, Morgan, Zachary, it's time to clean your room. Okay, what do you mean by room? Let's define room here. Let's get some parameters on room. I mean, because my closet, that's not my room. That's another room altogether. So you must not be talking about that room. I shut that door. I don't know what's going on in there. That's somebody else's room. You can't mean underneath the bed because I never go into that part of the room, so whatever's happening underneath there, that's not part of my room. And don't you have that feeling here that, that we're trying to, to, to really parse something that's so obvious? It's, I'm just talking about anything in this square space. But, but the man's trying to narrow it down so he fits into it in some way that gets him off the hook for caring for people that may be a little bit more difficult than he would like to care for. He's he's narrowing down. He's trying to fit in. And one commentator said this. He's basically trying to unneighbor people with the question. You notice that? Let's let's find out who my neighbor is so I don't have to be a neighbor to some other people. Just his question is unneighboring. Instead, Jesus comes at the man and he tells a story. Such a great way. I mean, this is—I would have just slammed the man with some facts and figures. I mean, this is where Jesus is so great. And again, he's surrounded by these seventy-two rookie evangelists. They're going to encounter this kind of thing all the time. So, first of all, we're noticing that Jesus is really trying to work on the man's heart, not facts. Secondly, instead of just bringing facts, he's just going to say, "Hey, let's just tell a story." And he goes into this very familiar. Familiar story about the, the good Samaritan. And, and isn't it happening in our own hearts that, that instead of coming to Jesus asking the question, please show me what full obedience looks like. Instead of coming saying, okay, you've given a command, can you just show me what full obedience looks like? So often we come to Jesus saying, now, now how far do I have to take that? This good and great God who's designed us, who said, I'm going to give you life. We come with a command and say, you know, what's the minimum requirement? What's the minimum requirement for forgiveness? What's the minimum requirement for coming to church? What's the minimum requirement of me giving my money? Can, can we just set the minimum so I make sure I do that, plus one, and then I'm okay? Jesus sees that attitude. He tells a story because the man's trying to justify himself. He tells the story, and he's trying to get to the, to, the, to, to the really the question that's behind the question, the internal part of this man. You notice the, the question the man asks, who is my neighbor? Can we make a list? Who am I supposed to love? It's an external exercise. And Jesus instead wants to, to get to the condition of this man's heart. So he wants to expose the very limited amount of love this man has in his own heart. So he tells the story, a man is traveling, he's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, very familiar road, about 15 or so miles, it's all downhill to Jericho, and it's a kind of a dangerous road, especially at night or if you're traveling by yourself, because bandits would set themselves up, sort of marauders, pirates, come in and, and take what they want and leave people half dead, and so this is exactly what happens in this story. And initially it appears, even though this man has been robbed and beaten, that he's gotten lucky because by chance, notice that, by chance two men are passing by, a priest and a Levite, both very knowledgeable of the Bible, both have right answers, both required by the law to help this man. Yet, for some reason, and lots of people want to make comments about why, but just for some reason, they look at the man and they, they pass by. They're, they're unwilling to stop. They're unwilling to love their neighbor as they might want to be loved. And so, despite these two men, despite their extensive Bible knowledge, it doesn't actually work out into action. Then Jesus, shockingly, and to this crowd, everyone, including these 72 evangelists, would have been like, <gasps> Samaritan. I mean, when we hear now in, in 2015, good Samaritan, we think of somebody that's really a good person because that's the way we our culture is. But back then, this was the most hated person. If you're a Jewish person, we despise the Samaritans. They're the ones who have really forsaken God. They can't be on our lips. They can't be in our story. John and James, even uh, the two disciples of Jesus, have said, hey, uh, when the Samaritans wouldn't have Jesus come through their town, John and James says, can we just send a lightning bolt and just extinguish them right now? That was the attitude. So when Jesus puts Samaritan into the story, especially into the story as this is a person this lawyer should follow, it was shocking. This is, this is the last person this lawyer would want to consider as a neighbor. And then note, just notice the, the very easy characteristics to see, verse 23 of the Samaritan. He comes to the half-dead man, and first, first, his first emotion, what? Is compassion. He sees him, and he has compassion. The second thing is he jeopardizes his own safety. I mean, maybe the bandits are still around. Who knows? And he's willing to be inconvenienced. He, wherever he was going, he had to make a detour, go back to this inn, and drop this man off in verse 35. He sacrifices a significant amount of his time and treasure. When Jesus finishes the story, again he's got this counter question. Well, which which one proved to be a neighbor? See, Jesus isn't at all concerned about defining who meets the conditions of being a neighbor. Instead, Jesus is defining the condition of the man's heart. The lawyer notice him. He can't even say the Samaritan. You notice that it says the one. The one who did this, he's he's so uptight, so unneighborly. He, he's never been affected by mercy, so he's not ever to give able to give mercy. He just says, well, OK, the one who showed mercy. And again, the same kind of feeling I get here. Jesus says, OK, go and do that. OK, you just show mercy to the worst kinds of people. People you hate and despise, go show mercy. You'll be all right. No more questions from the lawyer. He, he walks away because he's very educated. He's wise in his own eyes. He wants to justify himself by living by his own definitions. He doesn't want to live by the Bible's definitions. And he can't part with his pride. And the lawyer is not able to see what we can see here that Jesus's actions or the the actions of the Samaritan mirror the actions of Jesus. Jesus came to a dying people. Jesus's first reaction to the dying people was compassion. Jesus jeopardizes his own safety. Jesus gives up significant time and treasure to make sure we're completely healed. But the lawyer just wants to justify himself. He wants to be his own savior. Grayson said it well here. I, I thought I could do it all. And it was hard for me to admit that I, I couldn't, that I actually needed a savior. He, he's unable to receive mercy. He doesn't see his need for mercy. And therefore, he's unable to give mercy. Now, that's the end of this particular passage, but it's not the end of the Gospel of Luke. So I just want to close with these two stories that I think fit together. They're not right next to each other in Luke 18. It's a very familiar story. The rich young ruler, you'll remember him. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and what does he ask? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Same question. And Jesus says, you know, obey the law. Hey you know check got i've done that been there, done that got the t shirt Jesus anything else and it's I get, again I feel like it's the same feeling oh, before I leave, just one more thing uh sell all you have and give it to Ford, come follow me. What happens to the rich young ruler just like the 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 man wealthy in knowledge and pride, they both walk away from Jesus. The wealthy man has too much wealth to give up. The lawyer has too much pride to give up. And then as like a capstone, the next story, Jesus is walking the road to Jericho. And there's a blind beggar on the side of the road. And he hears that Jesus is coming by. And When he hears, what does he say? Jesus, son of David, do you have mercy? See, I don't have anything to give. I haven't done it right. I have no wealth. I have no pride. I just need somebody like you. Would you have mercy for somebody like Come and see eternal realities that you could never. 10,000 charms you could never see otherwise. And the wealthy in their pride and knowledge and the wealthy in their wealth walk away and maybe for a few more years they have happiness and they miss eternal joy. And it comes to the beggar. The first step to inheriting internal life is to know yourself and to know you're in desperate need of mercy. If you don't know that, then all the information we can give you won't be transformation. Let's pray. Lord, this is such a helpful but penetrating word especially for us because we're here, we're many of us have our Bibles open, we're the people who are trying to gain knowledge and 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 trying to do what's right and, and this this coldness can just so quickly creep in to to wanting to justify ourselves. And especially if we follow after you for any length of time and we get disappointment, then we're easily turned into the lawyer and put you on the stand and say, No, Jesus, you're not doing it right. So it's a message for people here, for me, to first see a great need for mercy. So I pray, Lord, that you would do that. That's only a work you can do. To examine the condition of every heart here and help them see their need for mercy. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen.